1: Welcome to the Art of Adventure podcast. This is episode 236 with fishing legend Oliver White. The Art of Adventure podcast is the podcast that helps you travel the world, run your business, and embark on an epic quest. I'm your host, lead explorer and guide Derek Loudermilk. Go to DerekLoudermilk.com to check out the show notes for this episode and all our other episodes and check out the latest adventure quest. Adventure quest 2019 is in Ireland. We've rented a private island with a castle on it, and we're working on some amazing adventures. So would love to see you there, have you there. If you've been thinking about going on one of these, we've had three of them. They don't happen. They happen once every 10 months or so at this rate. So if you haven't been yet, maybe think about coming on this one in Ireland. So on today's episode, we've got Oliver White and he has carved this unique place for himself in the fishing world. He's known for going to far off places and catching fish that have never been caught. One of his success stories is in the town of Rewa, Guyana, where he helped the local people establish a fishing community, essentially sport fishing, where they catch one of the world's largest freshwater fish. And he made a film about that, which won a Sundance Award. It's called Jungle Fish. But he's done a lot of interesting things in his life. He's had a brief foray into high finance in New York City when he went to work for a hedge hunt. So you'll hear about how that came to happen, a fishing guide ending up in a hedge fund in New York. He runs and owns two fishing lodges in the Bahamas. And he's the personal fishing guide for a lot of celebrities, but he doesn't really play up that fact. And he's becoming, he is a celebrity, a thought leader in his own right. He changes the way people think about fishing and adventure. And so this this is a really cool episode because Oliver, he has a philosophy degree. And so we do a bit of philosophizing and he sort of lets us into his own psychology to help us understand why he's been successful in so many different endeavors and there's a bunch of great stories in here cool story about a personal invite from the royal family of bhutan and a bunch more that you're not going to want to miss so without further ado here is oliver white welcome back to the art of adventure podcast i'm here with oliver white welcome to the show oliver
2: no, thanks so much for having me.
1: This is going to be really fun. And the first thing, which I thought would be a unique place to start, is you're known for catching fish that haven't been caught before and going places to fish that haven't been explored before. And you're primarily a fly fisherman. And forgive me because I'm not really a really fisherman myself. But what is that process like when you say, OK, I want to go try to catch a fish that's never been fly fished?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in general, you know, everything I feel in the world has been explored to some degree. But the fly fishing component does create a new variable and challenge and kind of creates an opportunity to go catch a species in a method that may not be established. And, and for me, I, fishing in general, part of the enjoyment is solving the puzzle and figuring out you know, how to do it. And, and I specifically love to fly fish, and so that's what I do. And when the opportunities arise to go explore something new and try to crack the code or improve the process, that's when I get the greatest enjoyment out of what I do. And, and the way I like to explain it to people is every day that you fish for anything, it's like reading a book and you fi- file that book away in your library. And so now, you know, after 20 years of fishing and traveling the world, I've fished so many days. So I've read so many books that I've filed away in this library. And every day that I go out, I have more information to pull from to help solve the next problem. And then you build and build and build on that. And it's really kind of remarkable how the thought process is. And 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 I've realized it not in my own fishing so much, but as I train other guides and other people, and they they wonder how I make a decision to do something. And, and your brain, my brain works. And well, I was in another place seven years ago and the moon and the tide were acting a similar way and this is what worked. And, and you start to pull from this information almost subconsciously, and it, it just kind of continues to evolve. And you combine that with this exploration factor, almost always what you're, what I'm using there is local knowledge, right? The indigenous people in these remote parts of the world, because almost definitionally to be exploring to any capacity means that you're gonna go somewhere a little off the map, and that usually means finding some indigenous people. And in general, they are incredibly in tune with their environment. And so you can just go and absorb from them. And, and what I'd like to start with is having them share everything they can and whether it's just from observing, you know, often there's a language barrier or you know you, whatever it is and watching them do their thing and then asking questions to try to convert what they do and what they know to something that I can replicate or mimic or try to capture with a fly rod. And you know the the one of the examples of that would be going down to Guyana and trying to figure out how to catch arapaima on a fly rod. And a few of them had been caught all the way back to the 70s, and I'd reached out to people about that. But there was not like an established method or technique or flies or anything. But as we got into the interior of Guyana and the jungle there, you know, the locals know everything there is about the fish. So they could find the fish. They would tell me how they would catch them. They knew what they would eat. And then we could sit there with a fly rod and a vice and – create something that, that would work to replicate as, as near proximity. And, you know, we're, we're successful in that and helped establish that as a, as a sport fish that, you know, 10 years ago, no fly fisherman knew what an Arapaima was. And now it's kind of a bucket list trip for everybody.
1: Yeah. There's so much, there's so much that goes into that. Uh, And the Arapaima, they're a big fish and, and Guyana is in South America, right next to Venezuela and, Brazil, I think. Right. Yeah. And so is this fish like a, a limited to a small ecosystem in the jungle there?
2: Y- yep. So Arapaima are, uh, the largest scaled freshwater fish in the world, right? So they they can be massive. I mean, they've been netted up over 400 pounds. Uh, you know, they can be, you know, eight feet long, you know, we're catching them on a fly rod you know, a small one's 100 pounds, a big one's 250. Uh, they are, they, you know, they're a living fossil. They haven't changed in over 200 million years. They're, uh, they're native to the Amazon basin. And so you can find them throughout the Amazon. I mean, the, there's a healthy population in Brazil. Uh, you know, they've been found in Peru and Ecuador, uh, Guyana, Suriname, you know, that little corner of the world. But they also have been almost wiped out anywhere that there's pressure from man. They're incredibly good to eat. And they're one of the few, if not the only fish in the world, I don't know of any other, that is what's called an obligate air breather. You know, there are other fish that can breathe air, but this is a fish that actually must come up and breathe air. And so they're huge and then they come up and breathe air. So they're really easy to find. And because they also must come up and breathe air, if you put them in a net, they can drown. It's kind of strange to think of a fish drowning, but uh, you know, those. that combined with a big fish that can feed a lot of people that taste good means that in most places where there's human pressure, they've been, been eradicated. And uh, that's partly what made this Guyana program so successful. Not only was it a remote village where they had a healthy population, but you know, we were able to help teach those villagers how to run a fly fishing operation, how to be guides, how to do hospitality. And a, and it was a community-owned project. It wasn't outside foreign investment. You know, it was actually a locally owned and operated deal. And as the community benefited economically, what we found is they become Arctic conservationists. And when they can start putting money in their own pocket from doing this sport fishing where you're catching these fish and taking their picture and letting them go uh, – the end result was they they became very active in conserving their resource and protecting the fish, and so the population is actually healthier now than it's been in, in, in kind of anyone's lifetime, recent lifetime.
1: And was this a project they started on their own and you found out about it, or how did you get involved or connected?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, really, I went down kind of just on an adventure. I'd heard that this fish existed and wanted to go try to figure it out. And one of one of the companies I worked with, Coast of Sunglasses, they had found out and they sent me down actually and sponsored the whole thing. And we made a little film called Jungle Fish. And what happened was, is we really became enamored with the people. I mean, we went down for a fishing adventure, which we found, and that was what we expected. Man. What we didn't expect was we found an amazing culture of people and an amazing place. And we felt that there was an opportunity to help. And so really myself and, and a gentleman named Al Perkinson, who was the VP of marketing there at Coast of Sunglasses, formed a nonprofit called IndieFly with the mission of using fly fishing as a tool to help indigenous people kind of all over the world and the first one was there in Guyana in Rewa village and we invested our time and we raised a little bit of money and put in some infrastructure did some training i actually brought one of the natives to the bahamas and he lived with me there for a little while to kind of see how to run a fishing lodge and uh, you kind of combine that with a unique fishery that you, that can't can't be found anywhere else in the world and it was a it was kind of an instant success and the economics look like the year before we were involved, the annual income for the entire village of 300 people, you know, was 700 bucks. And, uh, you know, this year they'll have a top line revenue of about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of people coming through and fly fishing alone. And what that what that translates to is multi generational impact and improvement of quality of life. And so the whole village has benefited and, you know, they now have better health care and better education and solar power and Internet even here in the middle of the jungle. And it's uh, it's been a remarkable, touching and successful story to watch this village take control of of this land that they owned and without having to do anything extractive, which is really what everyone around them is doing, have created an incredible economy that they can really continue to do in perpetuity. That's it sounds
1: like such a perfect situation. Is there is there anything that you have to watch out for or be careful with with something like that?
2: Oh, yeah, of course. Right. Nothing's quite that easy. And so with with all of that there, there are negative repercussions. Right. With newfound wealth comes, you know, alcohol and tobacco. And, you know, with internet, it's now they can compare themselves to other parts of the world that they had no exposure to. And, and then that's real, right? Those risks are real. And there's always a concern about having a negative impact by coming in and bringing foreigners and exposing them to things like that. And it certainly has happened to some degrees, you know, we're, we're very engaged with, you know, the village council and communicating of, of of risk and benefits and 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 really you know we they're to to be helpful but they get to make their own decisions even when we think they're mistakes we kind of let them stumble through and then then try to pick up the pieces and the, and even with that you know there there are you know there are are young men smoking and drinking now which didn't exist before our involvement which I I do think is a negative a direct negative impact of of our involvement and. The offset to that is it is still the lesser of the potential evils. You know, capitalism was encroaching on this village, and they had to figure out a way to participate in the economy. And every other village around them had sold the timber rights, sold the mining rights, and, you know, ultimately destroyed their natural resource, which is the only thing they've ever known. This community owns 200 square miles of rainforest. That The only thing that we've asked is that they don't do anything extractive. You know, so with this little investment of time and resources, you're sure there's some negative impact. But at the same time, you have protected a little oasis of rainforest as a result and that they can still stay connected to to their heritage and culture because they're really not doing anything that different. They're just taking people to go catch this fish in a different manner.
1: What are the local people asking from you or what are they what kind of advice are they seeking from you?
2: You know, it's it's varied over time, and at the moment, you know, we started this project in 2011, and so as we get into it now, our main role uh, as IndieFly as an organization is really to continue to help with the marketing and kind of booking of people, right? So we do handle the inflow of inquiries. If somebody wants to go down there and fish, I'm going to answer the questions. I'm going to help them you know, figure out all the logistics. We're, we will collect their money here in the States and we figure out how to get it down to the bank, which is a two-day journey from the village and all of those things. And then what they really focus on are the the operations, you know, how to, how to run the business. And then the other place that we add value is as they continually try to figure out how to improve and how to improve their quality of life. And, you know, a big chunk of the money that is created in this process goes to the community as a whole and so the community has to figure out how to deploy that resource and so we will help you know with that and make recommendations of let's put in solar you know let's put in a water system you know let's build a church whatever they need you know let's put in a cafeteria for the school and uh you know so we try to work within their own framework and try to keep them from kind of spending the money frivolously and at the same time make sure that they are thinking about an actual business and saving some money in reserve in case an engine breaks or a boat fails or, you know, something happens, you know, that they, you know, that they don't don't go back to, you know, just, you know, living in the moment, which is kind of their culture. You know, the planning for the future is a Western, is a Western thought.
1: (laughs) As, as I hear you talking about these things and using phrases like uh, deploying resources, I think it's, as a good segue to your time in New York in the hedge fund which was what
2: 2007 was it i left in 2007 so i was i moved to New York in 2005 and and left kind of the end of 2007 2008 and uh yeah you know i've had a really interesting career path i mean uh, to back up i have a philosophy degree so it's not that i'm an economist or a finance guy and I, I fell in love with fishing during college and I started guiding fly fishing trips during college. And my intent as an undergrad was to go be an attorney actually. And when I finished school, I decided that I was gonna take a little break and fish before I went back to graduate school. And that just continued into this traveling the world. Every time I got ready to quit, I got an opportunity to go somewhere else. So you know, I, I, Russia, Alaska, Iceland, you know, the western United States you know Wyoming and so I was just traveling the world and, and and had this incredible life and at the same time never thought I would do it forever I always expected to transition into a more corporate career and then I guided a gentleman down in Tierra del Fuego uh, Bill Ackman who runs Pershing Square Capital Management and he had never fished before we fished for a week and at the end of the week he told me I should come work for him in New York and And so, you know, I I ended up in New York about a year later after reading a bunch of finance books that he had sent me. And, you know, I was well, well out of my league. I tell people it's not like being thrown in the deep end. It's like being taken in a boat and driven offshore about 20 miles and thrown overboard and and, and left to figure it out. And I was in way over my head and worked really hard. And and more than anything, I, I got an incredible education, both both on you know, high level finance and accounting and economics. And it's really that experience that has allowed me to kind of go and combine all of these skills that I've developed, which is this fishing passion, and, and, you know, ability to guide and enjoy and derive pleasure from that combined with this newfound business acumen that I that I honed in New York. And, And, you know, it's created an incredible opportunity for me to do both of those. You know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an investor and a partner in some fishing lodges in the Bahamas. I started this nonprofit with some people where I can kind of use those skills to do good. I still guide, I write, I do some filming. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I get to make a living, you know, doing the thing that I love most in the world.
1: And do you how do you how do you view looking back, you know, more than a decade ago now, given that time distance? How do you how do you view that
2: moment in New York? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for me at least, it's always the hindsight and looking back where you can really understand the value of various experiences. I, I think I certainly underappreciated my time in New York and how rare and special that experience was when I was there. Um, I happened to, I was just in New York a couple weeks ago having lunch with Bill. And, you know, so went by the old office and back in the city and it is such an incredible contrast to my life now. <laughs> uh, it, it's really hard to imagine that I did that, and even even more difficult for the people that know me well is I, I loved my New York experience. I mean, I, not only did I love the job, I mean it's an incredible thing to show up every day and work with brilliant people, and that was certainly the case. I mean, every day just very intellectually challenged and pushed, and man, it was it was that alone was an amazing experience, but. The, the city itself, I mean, it's very cliche, but there's so much energy. And more than more than that, there's so much passion. And as I look back at my whole life now, the things that I, I think are really important are passionate people or interesting people. And it really doesn't matter what they're passionate about. And New York seems to attract a lot of people that have deep passion in something and and usually things that Better not on my radar. So it, it's even that much more interesting for me to, to interact with them. So without a doubt, it was a very formidable experience on the type of person that I am now. And at the same time there, I don't know that I would be capable of doing it again, right? It, it was good to do it in my twenties. And, uh, and it was good to grow from that. And it was a great learning experience. And I, I think everyone should have some New York time in, in their life. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I think that time in my, my life is, is well past.
1: And so what is it about you that allows you to succeed in such diverse experiences from from adventuring to running a business to being in a hedge fund in New
2: York? Yeah, you know, I wish there was a magic code there. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't feel that I'm particularly special in anything there. Uh, I do you know, I'm competitive. I like to, you know, I like to win and, uh, I like to be good at things. I push very hard. You know, when I get into something, I I'm all in, you know, I want, I, I, you know, I I just love to consume and, and get better. And, uh, I love to be challenged. You know, I'm certainly willing to put in the effort, man. I've always, always worked hard. And, um, I think that goes a long way. And something, another thing I learned from New York is, it's an incredible place because it's a true meritocracy once you're inside the doors, right? There's all there's a big gateway for a lot of those careers of of having the right pedigree, but once you've kind of gotten past the gate for whatever reason, you truly it is a meritocracy. No one cares where you're from or where you went to school or what you studied, you know, what they care about are your ideas and, and the way your brain works, which I found incredibly comforting. But the other side of that is it's a lot easier when you enjoy people and working with people. And although I really consider myself a loner, right? I I don't think of myself as very social. I do enjoy people and I get along with very diverse people. And I think, you know, being approachable and being open and being genuinely interested in other people helps facilitate a lot of things and opening doors. And, you know, for me that, that meant, you know, Somebody else at the hedge fund, you know, kind of taking me under their wing, right? When I first got there, you know, all these other guys all had Ivy League educations, you know, they, they had all worked really hard. And that was the path they were fighting for, and they had won. And then I show up as the fishing guide with a philosophy degree, right? It's it's kind of a letdown for them in a lot of ways. And, you know, for the most part, several of those guys couldn't be bothered. You know, they didn't want to spend time educating me with something that, in theory, someone in that position should already know. But two, two of them in particular, and Paul Hillel and Vic McGuire, you know, they took me under their wing and really helped educate me. And uh, you know, I think a lot of that is well beyond anything other th- than just just being able to make friends wherever I go. Right. And it might've even started as a kid. My dad was career military, so we moved constantly. Right. So every, like I can remember, you know, just crying as a kid because, Oh, you know, we made friends and now it's time to move somewhere else. And, uh, so I'm not sure if that's part of it or, or maybe that just triggered the wanderlust or, you know, that restlessness that I have. But, uh,
1: it's interesting yeah. that you say that I had a college roommate who was a military kid and he was so good with people. And whenever we needed him to talk to the landlord, you know, he was the one we were like, go, go talk to the adults because you have got great rapport. And his military family sort of helped him connect with people. But I've also heard that, that it can, can hinder people or that they don't feel like traveling anymore. So, I'm assuming that your family must have been pretty close for you to to be able to enjoy that military life yeah, experience
2: I, yeah you know I have two brothers' we're, we're the the three of us are very close and my parents were, were close and it's it's weird right you know I just had my first son and and I wrestle with that I mean I think there's a lot of value of having a home and having roots and having these lifelong friends and part of that is I see it in other people and I appreciate it, but you know, I don't have that myself. Um, and then I also find incredible value from this incredible array of experiences that are, that are available by being nomadic and bouncing and adapting all the time, right? I mean, I, I can move comfortably from the jungles of Guyana to the jungles of New York City and those two extremes. And I mean, I love that contrast and, and that ability to kind of move between them, I think, is a valuable skill that I watch a lot of people lack. And, and now that I have a son, you know, my wife and I wrestle with, you know, what, what do we want our life to look like? And you know, we don't have the answer. So I'm uh, <laughs> getting ready to drag him, drag him down to the Bahamas next week for a start. So,
1: what is, what are the, some of the things that you want to make sure that he does get the opportunity to experience? I, uh,
2: you know, I think all parents probably, the goal is to kind of create a better human being than yourself. And, all the things that I value in the world, you know, I, I want to expose them to and, and for me, a big part of that is in jeopardy right now. And some of that is just the idea that there's still wild, pristine places left in the world, right? I, I mean, the, the environment is changing and not changing for the better. And, and these things that I find incredible pleasure and happiness from uh, are at risk. And so, not only do I want to show him those things, but kind of show him how fragile they are, and you know how important it is to do your part, and you know to try to you know protect and save save those things. Um, I also, you know, I've had a lot of things happen to me in the world, and not all of them are good. And but at the same time, I genuinely believe people in the world are good, and. I'm really put off by, you know, the, the fear of other cultures and, uh, you know, I, I want him to grow up and be comfortable in all these different places and, and comfortable, you know, approaching people and not, you, you know, not this kind of brashness and standoffishness that, that I see, uh, kind of festering in America at the moment. And I think those are important skills and, um, people are generally afraid of things they don't understand or don't know. And so the more you can be exposed to, the easier it is to to make those decisions, I think.
1: Yeah. My first son is almost two, and we've brought him with us to several of our places, uh, Europe and Indonesia and Mexico and, and places like that. And, well, I mean, at such a young age, you don't know what's going to be important or if he'll remember any of it or, or anything like that. And, and really, he's got no choice but to come with us. <laughs> but it is it is something that I think about, you know, if I if I'm just stay put, then he can build these lifelong friendships. And but so you had you had your brothers, and, and they were sort of coming along with you, uh, wherever you guys were moving. My college roommate had two brothers as well, similar. Do you think you, you said about you're so you're so competitive? You like to get better, challenges. Uh, were you competing with your brothers,
2: uh,
1: physically, intellectually,
2: growing up? Yeah, I think always, right? I was the oldest. So, uh, you know, I had the advantage there. But yeah, I mean, we'd certainly from sports and to whatever degree academics as well, but uh, always competitive. And as I got older, I'm still competitive and I still like to win, you know, in, in group event type things. But a lot of it is still self-imposed and self-driven competitiveness you know it, it's a, a desire for self improvement more than anything you know there's self-imposed challenges and goals and, and and barriers and then you know who you know who knows the psychology of where that starts from i don't know if it's you know competing for attention amongst the brothers or or, or what but you know i have t- the the three of us we're we're all very eclectic right so i mean i I do whatever it is that you want to define what I do. My middle brother is a pilot. I mean he flies C17s for the Air Force and flies for American Airlines and then my youngest brother plays poker for a living, right? So we all are pretty all over the map and you know I think that says a lot about how we were raised, you know, which is really just to do what you're excited about doing and but do well at it and, and all of us, you know, do do pretty well in, you know, a, a very eclectic mix of careers.
1: So when it comes to something like your lodges in the Bahamas, do you define, like if, if you're feeling competitive or, or defining a challenge, do you pick some particular goal or how do you, how do you say like, okay, I'm going to shoot for this. I'm going to try to try to win or try to be the best that I can when it comes to something as complex as running a lodge.
2: Yeah. Great question. And part of that is, is the general challenge of doing what I do, which is looking holistically and like big picture, right? I mean, is one to be, you know, a successful recognized business, you know, enterprise, right? So when people want to go fishing in the Bahamas, I want them to think of Abaco Lodge and Bears Lodge as the place to go, right? You know, I want those to be in the top things rolling out people's mouths of that's the best of the best. And then to achieve that means that you also have to do all these other smaller goals to to get there and, you know, and included in there is how do you run a successful business in a space that's generally not not very conducive for that. And so, you know, there's the business side, there's the experience side, there's the employee management side, there's the marketing side. And uh, and that's how I I derive a lot of pleasure from doing that is. You know, it's it's not a linear path to success. I think uh, there's a quote
1: from you that says fly fishing is about uh, increasing your opportunities. Does that philosophy play into the business side of things for you as well?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely absolutely. these conversations like this are great because they kind of force you to be introspective and think about things as people, you know, fire. (laughs) And, uh, and one of, one of them that, that I think about is, you know, I think one of the things that I've done differently than others that has been helpful is taking good calculated risks and, Uh, you know, and you could go back to that. Going to New York was a good example of that. I mean, I was kind of on the top of my game and a rising star as a young fishing guide. And, you know, I chose to quit and go to New York and and do this hedge fund thing, which I didn't know what that really meant or understand. Uh, And I even moved to New York without even negotiating a salary. I just kind of showed up, uh, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing. And, uh, it, it seems a little reckless if you look at it from afar. And if you really dig in, you know, for me, it was, I'm going to go to New York. This guy was interesting. I think it'll be a, a worthwhile experience, even if it's a bad experience, right? The worst case scenario was I go, I hate the job. I hate New York and I walk away and I go right back to doing what I was doing. It means I missed one winner guiding in Argentina and I was right back in the same spot. You know, that's a pretty capped downside. And the upside was a full lottery ticket. You know, I don't know what happens. And and so anytime that you can have a risk reward where the risk is minimal and the upside is unlimited, man, those are those are worthy bets. And I've taken several of those in my life. And uh, you know, they don't all pay off, but many of them do. Um, and part of that means. Being very willing to get out of your comfort zone, and, and you know, I think you know some of this you know, the conversation today makes me, you know, maybe all that's tied back to each other. Of you know, you know, of you know, even as a child, being forced to move and getting out of your comfort zone, and you know, as that becomes more approachable, then it makes those decisions easier for me than maybe for others.
1: Well, this I think this is a very unique thing. I don't think a lot of people think about you know, especially fishing guides or resort owners are thinking about. Uh, downside risk and applying these uh, hedge fund thought patterns. So it's clear you have this very unique approach, which is which is very exciting. What do you think your your best skill is?
2: What is what is your crown jewel? Yeah. You know, I get that. That's something I do get asked often. And uh, I tell people all the time, right, man, I'm not the best fishing guide. You know, the components that make an angler, you know, the casting, the fly tying, all those things. I'm not the best at any of those things. Uh, I think that I do a better job than most of being very well rounded and, and excelling you know, above average in many categories and wrapping them all together into one package that I can kind of deploy whichever skill is needed at the moment. Um, is probably the most valuable thing that I have. I'm a very analytical person, right? My brain never stops firing and I'm <laughs> very very restless. So, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, that's a, that's a huge liability. But, you know, in some ways it does, you know, helps solve a lot of these problems.
1: So a lot of advice for young people is specialize in something go really deep in some area topic of expertise, but you have this more broad, broadly above average, and it sounds like it's working. So do you think that's bad advice, the the focus depth or, or how, what would you what do you think about that? <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, I, I think I would probably give the same advice contrary to my to my own doing. But I mean, I think you could also argue that I've gone very deep in this ne- extremely narrow niche of fly fishing. But I, I do I think going deep and really understanding something extremely well will make you invaluable. But I, I would hate to see people do that at the neglect of of being a little more well rounded. And, and part of that goes back to, you, you have to be able to communicate to the world and you need to be approachable. And you, you know, if you're gonna dig so deep into a little trench that you know, you basically learn a whole new language that no one else knows. Um, if you can't share what you know with other people, then then you also really narrow your ability to impact anything.
1: I'm going to share another quote of yours with you about helping people feel comfortable that as, as a guide, you want to help your fishing clients feel relaxed or comfortable. How, how do you
2: think about that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know where you got so many quotes on my, on me there. So, but, uh, <laughs> so as I think about guiding, there are a couple things that I think I view differently. I think most fishing guides or or most people, when you think of a fishing guide that they think of that person's job is to, you know, help that person catch fish. And, And that is certainly a component of it. Um, but I find that the most valuable thing that people ever give me as a guide is their time, right? It doesn't matter what the trip costs. It doesn't matter, You you know where we're going or anything. Right. People have decided to take their free time and spend it with me and and entrust me with maximizing their experience. And I think a lot of people don't really know what they want. Right. They they're looking for an idea, you know, and they're trying to generally escape from their life and I do, it's a very male dominated sport for better or worse. And, uh, that is slowly changing. We're getting more women participation, but, you know, I think there is a general idea that he, you know, I think most young boys and, and, uh, you know, dream of this idea of being able to fish or spend their life outside. You know, I mean, it's a great, it's a great vicarious thing that I, that I can offer people. And so you want them to get out of their comfort zone you might you want to push them a little bit but not too far you want them to be comfortable right Uh, and not scared but also growing as an individual and you want them to be relaxed you know generally you know the type of clientele i have you know they're very successful in what they do and they're not used to being told what to do uh and they're not used to not being in charge and so it you know you, you want them to not feel like they have to perform or impress press me, right? This is about them and their experience. And, uh, I think all of those combined to just an incredible relationship between the client and the guide, because oftentimes it's the only time that they get to be treated normal, right? I mean, you know, I I take a lot of people that run big, huge businesses or, or, you know, very influential and powerful and famous people. And, you know, people, people don't give them a hard time. People don't talk shit to them when they're, when they're making mistakes, right? They're used to people (laughs) always, always wanting something from them. And so that ability to kind of treat them normal is is a great relief and and very comfortable. And I think that's why you often as a guide become, you know, very friendly with people that you, in the long run, have spent very little time with. So I'm not a fisherman. Can you, and I've
1: tried it, I've tried it, I lived in Bozin, Montana, there's great rivers up there and a lot of people fish and I had a fly fishing rod that someone gave me and I went out and it didn't click
2: for me. So why do people love fishing so much? Sure. You know, there. there's two things. One, I think of fly fishing kind of like playing a guitar. You got You have to invest a lot on the front end to be able to produce something, right? So it's really hard just to pick I, it up and I don't enjoy. play guitar either. <laughs> right, yeah. um, but, you know, what is the attachment to fishing as a whole? And I think it's – there's a very – Primal satisfaction of fooling a wild creature to eat something that they're not supposed to and being connected to it with a piece of string, right? (laughs) There's something very, you know, it's just an incredible feeling to like, man, I got him, right? I, you know, I, I, I fooled that creature in its element to do something it was not supposed to do. And now I'm attached to it, you know, with this tiny little piece of string. And, uh, and there, there is just a basic, basic joy that comes from that. And you see it in children when they catch their first fish, right? There's something really exciting and and innate, right? It doesn't have to be taught. It's just there. And the good news for fly fishing for me is it's also a very cerebral deal. And I, I think what it really does for me and for a lot of people is it requires enough thought and concentration that you are in the moment and not distracted or thinking about anything else. But at the same time, it is not so much that it's taxing. So it's, it's almost the whole time you're fishing. You're in this moment of Zen of you. You're concentrated, but not, not, not pushed. You're not, you're not frustrated. And so it's just kind of this calm And there's this incredible rhythmic relaxing nature of the fly cast itself uh that that I find quite therapeutic. And uh yeah, I think you combine all that and 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 now for me it's it's segued into the travel and the adventure and the cultures and uh you know the fishing is really the thread that ties that together. Um and and I think what you find is basically fishing is this infinite curve. And you can you have to get semi proficient to enjoy it, but then you can choose how far down that curve you want to go. But you'll never reach the end. You continually improve and evolve as an angler Mm. forever. So, you know, there's this, you know, constant improvement and and challenge and ability to to keep learning that, you know, pushes you forever. And and you and you'll never find the end. Uh, But at the same time, right, you can stop at any point and still get enjoyment. And I think that makes it uh, very interesting for a broad array of people. And they can all find their little niche within there of what they specifically like.
1: Mm, That's so brilliant. And it's something that I'm coaching on a lot is uh, it's so important to have something that you can continue to be challenged to, to put yourself in that flow state, the, you know, the optimal experience where it's not too hard or too easy. One of my favorite books. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with, and I'm sure there's a lot of fun analogies between flow of the mind and flow of rivers and so given that you're a philosophy major sure. do you do you have any of these mental analogies that you're making like with river and <laughs> psychology and stuff like that
2: yeah you know i could try to make something up off the cuff here but, <laughs> but no I, you know i don't yeah yeah i i think more than anything it's an appreciation for a relatively simple life. And it's a incredible luxury to think about what I do, which is travel around the world to go catch fish, to let them go, you know, you know, I mean, that's, a, it's a pretty, pretty first class problem. And, uh, at the same time, I think that there really is incredible value of getting people disconnected and, and getting outside. And I think if more people spent more time doing what I do, the world would be a better place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the motivation. I run these trips called Adventure Quest where I take entrepreneurs out and, and it's they're, they're giving their time because they feel like they need something. And a lot of times they get something different than what they're seeking. But I think just getting people outside and shaking up their patterns and locations and all that and being in nature is just going to give them so much and, and reset so
2: many things. Yeah, there's no doubt. I, I find that the contrast is very stimulating for for problem solving and thought. And so, you know, going from from an extreme, like you know, I, I just just went and spent you know three weeks in Bhutan in the middle of nowhere, and just to come out of that back to the normal world, you know, that contrast, you, you know, it does. It forces you your brain to kind of reset and think. And you know, I I, I derive a lot of value from those from that juxtaposition.
1: What were you doing in Bhutan? Were you exploring a new fishing spot? Yeah, indeed. I,
2: so uh, I actually got an invitation from the royal family to go and explore the uh, potential to kind of create an Indy fly Guyana-esque model there, which is really, really, the whole experience is almost surreal. I, I mean, Bhutan, for, for those that don't know, is kind of nestled in the Himalayas. It's kind of sandwiched between... India what would be Tibet uh, China and uh, it's a Buddhist country so no one fishes no one's allowed to fish uh, except the Royals the the royal family uh, you know has has a history of being sportsmen and so you cannot fish without the blessing of the king and you know it's actually a, it, it's considered a sin in Bhutan to even cut down a tree you're not allowed to harm anything and so you know fishing is very taboo But the idea of fly fishing where you can catch them and let them go you know has potential to to be accepted within the culture and uh, bhutan is particularly looking for high value low impact tourism and they have a, a unique fish called a golden masir which is uh very very difficult to catch very big very strong uh also you know has you know some environmental pressures which means there are not many of them left in the world and Butan is still a very pristine and intact environment. So, there, the idea was, is this a, a product that we could develop, you know, to have fly fishermen come, catch and release only, very low impact, you know, very high value uh, tourism. So I went down to explore and and, and look look for that and. Uh, it was you know an incredibly worldly experience. Uh, we did catch a few fish. It was very challenging for for many reasons, but it was also trying to crack the code, right? We didn't have have any information and still were able to get it done. and and, and we're pushing that forward. I think uh, I think there is potential on a very small scale to bring a few anglers in at a high price tag to to go have this wonderful experience in in one of the most interesting cultural, Places that I've ever been, and you combine that with some really cool fishing. I think it's truly unique.
1: Wow! Yeah, Bhutan. I think they still have the gross national happiness
2: policy there. Do. do they seem pretty happy? Indeed, you know they, they do. They measure gross national happiness, not gross domestic product, and it is a happy culture. And you know, one of the one of the one of the takeaways from that is trying to live a little bit more in the moment. I think they, you know, they you know that that Buddhist mindset that they have is quite impressive. And it takes takes some practice.
1: Okay. So, so let's use the opportunity in Bhutan as maybe like a case study. First of all, it's not everyone that the royal family calls up and gives some cool opportunity. So how did that come about or what set you up for that to happen in the first place?
2: Yeah. The Bhutan project really came out of the Guyana project. You know, having started this one in Guyana, which is been so remarkably successful. It's been written about, and that story has been told. I mean, the film that we made down there called Jungle Fish won an award at Sundance for, you know, a conservation award. And so it's an intriguing idea to be able to use sport fishing as a method of conservation. People generally don't think of anglers or hunters for that matter as conservationists, but in fact, you know, people protect what they love. And, you know those people that are outside participating they truly love it and uh, and they often are very very much the most ardent conservationist and so as the boonie's government and and royal family you know was looking for opportunity this is something that came across their radar and they they reached out and found me and you know those were my favorite calls to get of like you know do you want to come somewhere New where very few people have been, and try to figure out this puzzle. You know that's that's a pretty killer combination for me. And so I love those opportunities. And uh, it also almost becomes self-fulfilling as, As you start to do a couple of those, you become the guy that other people reach out to to do them. And so, you know, I've almost put myself on a path where if you're looking to do some crazy exploring, there's a very short list of which I am part of to go figure out those puzzles. And, you know, for better or worse, that's that's a pretty interesting trajectory for me. And they are the ones that I kind of derive the most pleasure from, but they are not necessarily the most lucrative, right? I mean, usually those are all pro bono type trips and you're in it for the adventure, which, uh. Which luckily I'm still able to do.
1: And you know, I think I think people view you as a, as a personality, a thought leader in the fishing space, and, and with that comes some sort of responsibility. How do you view your own position that where people are looking to you for guidance and inspiration and things like that?
2: Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's really uncomfortable. Um, you know, that, that was never an aspiration of mine to be a public figure of any kind. You know, I really, you know, I was just chasing, chasing my own desires and dreams. And but you're very, very much right in that. As you become a recognizable figure, there is a sense of duty and obligation that comes with that. And for myself, I mean, I interpret that in a few different ways. You know, one is no one in life gets to where they are on their own, right? Uh, you know, I've had some incredible mentors and I've had some incredible people go out of their way to help help me be successful. I mean, Bill Ackman is is the easy example there. And so when I look at people like that, and I can continue to use Bill as an example, you know, one of the things that I admire most in people it, is their willingness and energy that they put into helping others. And so, uh, I take a lot more time than I probably should, you know, answering all these silly Instagram questions of, Hey, I want to be like you type thing and try to encourage people. And, you know, I think most of those are probably a waste of time, but you know, every now and then maybe you find somebody that is really going to resonate with and, and help push them, uh, to, to do something because, I think it's it's unique to be able to to pursue something you're really excited about, and I do think there's opportunity there. And I also think with that is this need to give back, and that's part of what Indiefly is for me is an ability to take my my unique skill set and deploy it to people and do good in the world, right? And do good in the world just for the sake of doing good, you know, going down to Guyana and investing all this time and figuring out how to finance their own infrastructure so that they can own it and they can profit. I mean, it's in direct competition to what I do for a living where I, you know, you know, build and run fishing lodges as a for-profit business, you know, but to be able to go do that in these little remote places and let the community own it and the community benefit completely, you know, it, it's my favorite thing that I do. And then then the last part of that is, you know, you end up with a voice for better or worse. And, you know, I think it's important to be an advocate for things that you find are important. And I don't know when this will air, but you know, this is you know voting season. You, you're like people need to go vote, right? you know, using that voice to get out and encourage people to, you know, to be impactful and for me you know a lot of that comes back to you know conservation and public lands and and the things that help facilitate this lifestyle that i enjoy so much and so i do try to take the time to Help fight the good fight and encourage people to, to do so and also try to set a standard that if you're going to participate, right, if you if you enjoy the outdoors, you know, no matter what it is, man, if you're a hiker or an angler or a hunter or a skier, right, you have an obligation to kind of give back to to help those things continue for the next generation. And it doesn't have to be dollars. You know, it could be time. It can be all these little things. There's lots of great organizations that do the grunt work that we, we should all be getting behind.
1: Well, yeah, thank you for I just want to acknowledge you for using your your voice and you know simply simply by having some some strong opinions and telling people what to do, I think goes a long way. Cause sometimes people people are not sure what's what's going to help so yeah really really appreciate that you're doing that and let's let's wrap with maybe a a, a fishing story is there a is there a time when like you were trying to catch a fish and you had to 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 bring as much creativity and and, and figure something out and then there was some sort of aha moment could you could you maybe share a, a fishing aha moment
2: yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, we'll just kind of keep it in line and talk more about the uh, arapaima in Guyana because there was definitely that there, and it was almost almost by luck. So, you know, this is a giant fish, and they're predaceous, so they eat other fish. So we very quickly started tying a fly, you know, which is you know the lure that a fly fisherman would use that looked like a fish, and we were getting getting interest, like fish were eating it, and we, you know, the the fly was you know, it was probably like 12 inches long. And so that meant that we were fishing two hooks that are offset, you know, with the idea that if you ate the back, you'd get the, get them on the, that if they, the whole thing, you get them on the front hook. And, you know, so we'd have these fish eat and then they would jump and we think we had them and they're pulling so hard and you mean doing everything you can as an angler and it all feels right. And then it would just come undone over and over and over again. And we, you know, we tried, different, you know, we had something that they were eating, but we weren't closing the deal, right? So we were getting the fish's interest, we were getting them to eat, but we weren't able to actually land them and touch them, you know, which was the ultimate goal. And really counterintuitive, we kind of, we were in the jungle, you know, we're on a several week mission and we started running out of stuff, uh, you know, so what we ran low on were hooks. And so we started tying our flies with just a single hook. And that was the moment that it all changed. And so all of a sudden we were doing everything we were doing before, but we were able to hook the fish and land the fish and touch the fish. And that was the one component that changed. And it wasn't even a thought process of why would we do that? It was an after the fact. Why did that matter? And why was that the thing that helped? And uh, the answer to that is. An arapaima is in the class of fish that means bony tongues. So they have this big triangular tongue in their mouth and they're a suction feeder. So they would take the whole fly down and they would crush it on their tongue and just hold it. So you would feel with the two hooks that you had this fish and he's just holding the fly in his mouth. And when he jumped, he would open his mouth and just let go. And when we had the two hooks, as they're sliding out of their mouth, the idea is that a hook would get purchased. You know, it would find some piece of soft tissue to get buried and their mouth is so hard that with two hooks, they would both be pulling and you're, you're, you, you're, know, the, the pound of pressure you're putting would get dissipated between the two. And that was insufficient to set the hook properly. So it wasn't until we got down to one hook, because they were eating the whole thing, it wasn't an issue that they would only get one hook in their mouth. They'd have both hooks in their mouth. So when you had one hook and you would pull with the same pound strength, that one hook would be able to get buried in their mouth and we'd be able to catch them. Wow. And, uh, you know, and I, would, I think of that as an example all the time of, you know, I just, you know, the problem solving, you know, as an angler and as a guide, you know, we're sitting there trying to figure out this puzzle and, you know, we, we learn by mistake more than anything, but, that, but that's okay.
1: Wow. So it was just the physics of it. Yeah. It, wow. So cool. Wonderful story. And wonderful, Oliver, having you as a guest—it's been—it's been so much fun. Really, really enjoyed you coming on the show. Where can people find you online and uh, find out more about what you're up to?
2: Yeah, you know, these days Instagram is pretty good for me. I try to keep people in tabs of where I am in the world. It's just Oliver White Fishing on Instagram, and I do have a website as well, which is also Oliver White Fishing. And uh, either of those will help you keep tabs on me. Brilliant. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you so much.
1: All right, another awesome episode with Oliver White. I love how the different aspects of his life, the the philosophy, the the time in New York, the fishing, that all bleeds into how he thinks, how he acts, how he calculates risk and opportunity. And I think... Uh, one of the, one of the best things for me was hearing about why fishing is so great, why people love it so much. Because honestly, I I tried fishing and I never really got it. But now I think I think I want to give it a shot. I think I want to get good enough to experience the the joy that experienced fishermen, fisher people. <laughs> let's let's be inclusive here. Fisher people get. And even as he's been become such a figure in the fishing world. He obviously is super humble. Uh still has time to come on a podcast like this one. And just just a really amazing guy. I I hope I get to talk with him some more um because I think he's he's one of those rare people that that really just everything works out, but it's because they work hard and they uh, cap the cap the downside risk to put it in his terms. <laughs> All right, and if you uh, have been listening to the show, and you might have noticed that we took a little pause for a while. I was busy launching uh, another book, Activate Your Life. Uh, You can find that on Amazon. That's a collection of 50 coaches. I brought 50 of the world's best coaches together, and they picked their favorite coaching exercise, and each one submitted that as a chapter to this book. So check it out. It's a number one bestseller in the self-help category on Amazon. And if you haven't subscribed or rated to rated the podcast, this podcast, Art of Adventure in iTunes, uh, I would love for you to do that. It helps boost the show up in the rankings. And when you leave a review, it does two things. One, it shows me what you're enjoying about the show uh, and its feedback as well. And it also helps other people find out about the show. So thank you so much for doing that. If you haven't already, I'm just going to assume that you're going to go and do that right away if you haven't and that is all for today so now it's your turn to go out there and be adventurous